This morning we are, we are in Romans 9 as we continue our study through the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open there. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Romans chapter 9, first 13 verses. Um, perhaps you know that Romans 9 is one of the most controversial chapters in all of Scripture. We have statements in Romans 9 such as, Jacob I loved, God is saying, Esau I hated. We have God saying, or Paul saying, He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. And we have statements such as God preparing vessels of wrath for destruction. Um. The topic, or this, uh, the, the chapter, concerns predestination and sovereign election and the sovereignty of God. And there's a lot of controversy here. In fact, I, I put here, remember the first time you read this chapter. If you've, if you've come out of a background, uh, perhaps we'll call it an Arminian background. If you come out of a, a background... Uh, where the emphasis is placed on human freedom, free will, decision, and choosing to follow Christ. Um, if you've come out of that background, like me, you probably remember the first time you read this chapter and um, were confronted with some, some very hard-to-understand, difficult truths um, about how God works in salvation. So that's what we're beginning today. We're going to talk about it this week and next week, of course. Um, but think about kind of the overall context here of the book of Romans. Paul has gone through the major elements of our salvation. Remember the thesis statement of the book of Romans is uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He begins unfolding that gospel. He begins with human sinfulness in the first uh, three chapters. And then he moves to talk about justification, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works of the law. Then he moves on to talk about sanctification. That's kind of the section that we just ended. Uh, it begins in chapter, really at the end of chapter 5, and goes all the way into chapter 8, talking about sanctification and even glorification at the end of chapter 8 as well. So he, he's kind of moved through the, the major elements of our salvation. And the issue now at hand, he's going to return to, is what about Israel? Because part of the conversation all along has been the law. What role does the law given to Israel play in our salvation? So he's, he's kind of hinted at this question along the way. But what about Israel? What about God's promises to Israel? What about God's purposes through Israel? It's this lingering question that he picks up here in chapter 9 and he's going to talk about it through the end of chapter 11. It's a major focus here, the next section of this book, of this epistle. The question being, really, the elephant in the room, why are they enemies of the gospel? Why are they persecuting us? Why do they oppose the gospel that the Apostle Paul is declaring to them? Why have they rejected the Messiah, Paul, that you're claiming is the Jewish Messiah? So, 
this question, these questions, lead him really to discuss not just Israel, but the, the grander, greater, bigger question of election, predestination, and really the sovereignty of God. Uh, as we'll see, he, he talks about nations, but he also talks about individuals. It's applicable to both, and, which makes sense because nations are made up of individuals. You can't really separate the two. So, don't listen to people who say this chapter is only about God's purposes for nations, has nothing to do with individual salvation. That's the exact opposite that Paul, uh, argument that Paul makes. He talks about individuals to show God's purposes in nations because they're both and. So, with that, I want to ask you a question. For those of you particularly who've been here the last, I don't know, six or eight weeks, how does Paul get from the glorious heights of Romans 8? Remember how that chapter ended? Like, what can separate us? From the love of God in Christ. Nothing. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of doxological, um, um, I don't know, climax of, of the last three chapters there in Romans 8. How does he get from the glorious heights, one of, one of the best chapters in all of Scripture, most encouraging, joyful, assuring, how does he get there to Israel election and predestination? Um. Has he entirely switched subjects here? Uh, um, that's topics. That's what I'm asking you. What do you think? How does he get there? Anybody? Okay, I can just tell you. It's fine. <laughs> I, I want you to think about how he is entirely challenged the Jewish conception of how and who God saves. I mean, he has, he, has, he has dropped a bomb, as they say. The Jewish conception of salvation. Because he said, you know, so many thought that obedience to the law, or the fact that they had been circumcised, or the fact that they were descended, a covenant child of Abraham, that they were God's salvific people. And that they had nothing to worry about. But Paul has said, no, it's faith alone and Christ alone. And it's not just given to you. To the Jew first also, to the Greek. Is what he said all along. The Gentiles are part of this. And this is going to culminate in, in chapter 11 where he says the Gentiles have been grafted in. To this olive branch, olive tree of of God's promises. So, um, in this sense, this is, it's on topic. He, he's challenged everything they thought about salvation, so he's, he's, he's taking a step back to explain that a little bit more. I, I don't want you to think that, um, you know, he just ends with this glorious statement in Romans 8 and then just jumps to an entirely new subject. He's developing the implications of what he's been saying. So, that kind of gives us the context here. All right, so um, really two things to, to summarize what we'll see today. God's purposes for Israel, which culminate in Christ, the Messiah, and then God's purposes in salvation according to election. 
that's the best I can kind of sum it up to, to kind of um, just let you know what we'll be looking at in these two, two sections of Romans 9. All right, questions or comments? Well, then let's read Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Um, Paul's heart breaking there. He starts with this, I'm not lying. Why does he say this? I'm not lying as opposed to... Other times that I'm talking to you? <laughs> Why does he say, I'm speaking the truth, I'm not lying? Why do you think he says that? Might be hard to believe. Might be hard to believe. Yeah. Um, what I'm telling you is a difficult truth. And you may be inclined to think that I'm making it up or I have an agenda. I have an axe to grind. Uh, He's taking an oath here by saying that. He's swearing, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness to me. he's He's swearing that he's a burdened man. He's saying that he is anguished over the rejection of Christ by his fellow Israelites. He even says, I'm willing to trade places with them and be accursed by God in their place. He echoes Moses here, which, who also offers to do the same in, in the face of the sinful Israelites. He echoes, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was cut off in our place. He's saying, you know, I'm so burdened that, that, that I myself would be willing to trade places with them. And what I think this shows us is that, you know, these, this topic of election and predestination, it's, it's not an ivory tower debate. He knows and he feels the weight of this reality. He feels it. It's not just an academic discussion. And maybe there, in some sense, we could say there's no joy, and I speak of earthly joy, in Paul here as he contemplates this reality. Because he sees so many of his fellow countrymen cut off. 
Um, I think this should challenge us initially, right? Right away, as we think about this discussion and how often it takes, uh, how it often takes place in our churches, in our circles of friendship, um, this should challenge us because often, you know, we can be cold and abstract. We can be disagreeable. We can be harsh. We can forget that predestination isn't abstract, but actually involves real people. It's not just a a matter of accounting, you know? These go here, these go here, arbitrarily looking at things as if God is up there choosing and not choosing in this type of arbitrary manner. Um, we ought to approach this doctrine with, with humility, and it ought to cause, give us a tremendous burden for the loss. That, that's what it produced in Paul. I've got anguish over those who've rejected their Messiah that are my countrymen. And, and, and what did he do? He, he went to his grave preaching the gospel, taking the gospel to them in hopes that they might be saved. We get in these discussions, sometimes people say, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then you have just pulled the rug out of any kind of incentive to evangelize because God's just going to you know, save them if He wants. This is the exact opposite effect that it had in the Apostle Paul. It gave him a greater burden for the loss. It gave him a greater humility. And of course, it should do the same in us as well. So he starts with this, with this burden. This is, this is hard to hear. It's hard to say. It hurts me to say in some sense. But this is... The revelation of God. This is the truth of God. I'm not lying to you. This is what has been revealed to me as an apostle by the Holy Spirit. And so he moves to talk about the great privileges of the Israelites. And he talks about how they were adopted. Like they were called the sons of God or the son of God. Israel, my son. The frequent phrase in the Old Testament. Just like Adam. Which mirrored their covenantal arrangement and how they were Adam reborn and of course foreshadowed the ultimate son of God and the ultimate Adam Um, they had the divine glory cloud of God's presence they had the the covenants of promise they had the law and the true worship of God um, in contrast to every other nation on earth they had the promises of God So he's talking about the great privileges they have. And these privileges culminate in verse 5, the patriarchs from whom came forth the Messiah. And who is that? Christ, who is God over all. Um, This is a side note here. This is one of the clearest New Testament affirmations of the deity of Christ. It's a beautiful statement. Is the Christ who is God over all? And then he adds a blessing, a doxology, who is blessed forever, amen, something that is, of course, ascribed to God and God alone. So 
Yeah, just think about that statement. We think about Christ as God overall. Overall means everything, the entire universe. He's not just saying Jew and Gentile. He's saying Christ is God overall. It's all encompassing here. And he's identifying um, God of, the God of the Old Testament with Jesus Christ. And so, but the implication is that Israel's rejection of Christ, as he's going to, is kind of in the background here, is a rejection of the one true God revealed in their history and in the scriptures. So I bring that out because even though he's burdened for their salvation, Paul doesn't back down. He doesn't say, okay, well, they may have rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but they still worship the one true God, so, you know, we're all good there. At least we have that commonality. Maybe if they follow faithfully, they, they will be saved. No, the implication is they have rejected the God who is God over all if, if they've rejected Jesus Christ. That may not be controversial in our circles, uh, but that's certainly controversial. Well, it certainly was back then, cost him his life, uh, but it's controversial even in our day as well. Are Jews who reject the Messiah part of the people of God. Are Jews who reject the Messiah God's people and will they be saved even though they reject the Messiah? The answer, of course, is absolutely not. Jesus Christ himself declared that again and again and again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is what Paul is saying. The privileges of Christ, excuse me, privileges of Israel has brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God over all. There is no other way of salvation. And so to conclude kind of what he says in verse five of one through five, God's purposes in Israel, the blessings, the promises, the privileges, the revelation, the covenants, the patriarchal line were all for one grand purpose to bring forth Jesus Christ. That's the initial answer to the question of, what about Israel? What about the law? What about the covenants? They don't stand on their own. They they were for a purpose. And now that purpose has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the other kind of um, um, scaffolding that held up that, 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 that pursued that promise has now fallen away because the reality is here. And, and this, you know, as we think about this, we're, we're always in danger when we look at Old Testament institutions and Old Testament covenants and Old Testament promises and people apart from their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the gospel. There are Christians nowadays. I think um, one prominent one is, um, I should say professing Christians, one prominent John Hagee, the dispensationalist, TV evangelist, He speaks quite a bit about how the Jews don't need to accept Christ in order to be saved. They can just follow because they have all these promises. Well, this this right here conflicts with that idea. We must look at everything in the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Jesus said himself, all the scriptures speak of me. And Paul is saying he's over all. He's the point of it all. So, That's his kind of summary of the first five verses. I'm burdened with this. I'm speaking the truth about this. The privileges of Israel are great. 
They, from their race, came the Messiah. I'm not overlooking or dismissing the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. Any questions, comments at this point? Before we move on to the rest, 6-13. through 13. All right. You guys are really quiet today. I mean, have you guys just all just... Romans 9, that's just common knowledge? Or, well, I guess we haven't got to the juicy part yet. Karen? I'll say something. Um, <laughs> we were talking about God's sovereignty and being kind in communication and more about that. I've heard um, someone relate when a father asks a child to say do a task for him, that father could easily have done it, but he delights to use his child, and the child actually delights to use my father. Yeah. I think that's a good picture. Yeah. Yeah, connection with, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the burden of Paul for the lost uh, echoes the burden of Christ, weeping over Jerusalem. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, and um, for us as well as we look at this, and, and God using us for the accomplishment of his purposes. Absolutely gives us great comfort that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and with our burdens. Well, let's, uh, let's keep reading. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is the promise, this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, Let's work through this. I want to say that right away, the passage is hard to understand. I should say, it's probably a better way of putting it, it's hard to embrace. Pretty clear, it's hard to embrace. It's hard to reconcile with other scripture. It's hard to reconcile with our own experience. Here, I just referenced uh, Chosen by God. I remember reading that early on in my Christian life. And he begins that book, R.C. Sproul, he, he begins by talking about how it just goes against our natural American independence. That we don't have a king over us. We are free. We, 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 uh, we are independent. And 
and, and, and he shows how, you know, it rubs Americans in a way that, that doesn't other countries who, who, who do have a monarchy and understand what it means to have a king and an absolute sovereign. But also, he talks about how our natural inclination, R.C. Sproul mentions that when he first read the, the Romans chapter 9 and kind of understood what it was saying, he threw his Bible across the room. It made him angry. What are you talking about? God chooses whom he loves and whom he hates? What is this? So it, it conflicts with our natural sense of justice, that, that everyone is responsible for charting their own course, for choosing their own path. God will allow everybody an equal opportunity to respond to his offer of salvation, which is kind of ridiculous even on the, on the face of that, because... You know, we have opportunities here in America. We hear the gospel. We have the Bible on, on every street corner. Even just think about how somebody in another country, in a Muslim country, might never hear the gospel, might never, ever come across a copy of the Scriptures. Are you saying that the, God gives everyone equal? No. Nothing in life is equal. Some people are rich. Some people are poor. Some people are gifted. Some people are not. Some people are disabled. Some people are strong. Some people, everything in life seems to go right for them. Some people, everything in life seems to go wrong for them. It, it, it's ridiculous on the face of it just to say that God gives everyone equally a chance, but it conflicts with our natural inclination of fairness. But listen to what he says. The question. The question he opens with. If Israel hasn't embraced their Messiah, the culmination of all their promises and privileges, one through five, has God's word failed? Has God himself failed to keep his promises? He made promises to them. What happens now that they've rejected them? What does this mean about God's promises? Paul's answer, of course, is no. No, God's word hasn't failed. No, God hasn't failed to keep his promises. And why? Well, he answers that in verses 7 and 8. It's not those who were descended from Israel that belonged to Israel. It's not the children of Abraham, just because they are his offspring, that are the children of Israel, that they are children of Abraham. He quotes Scripture and says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Who said that? God did. He's saying, don't you remember how God said that it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named? Don't you remember this didn't apply to all of Abraham's children? It applied to the one God said it would apply to, Isaac? It's not the children of the flesh speaking there of natural birth, but the children of promise that are counted as the offspring. And so this answers the question, who is a true Israelite? If you want to answer the question like, if Israel hasn't embraced their Messiah, has God's words fail, failed? You've got to ask, answer this one. Well, who is Israel? Who is a child of Abraham? Who is an heir according to the promises? To Israel at the time, it was anybody who was ethnically Israel. 
I can trace my bloodline back to Abraham, therefore I'm a child of the promise. Paul's saying, no, you got it all wrong. It's not bloodline. It's not genealogy. It's not heritage. Who then is it? Who is Israel? The child of promise. Who are the children of promise? Well, first Paul references Isaac in verse 7. And remember, you know, Abraham had many sons. Um, But it was God who declared that the promise was given through one particular son, not his other sons. The promise came through Isaac, was given to Isaac. In fact, if we look at uh, Galatians 4.21 and following, Paul references this and And there he argues that that even though Ishmael was a child of Abraham, he was a circumcised child of Abraham, he was in bondage. The promise was never to him, which is why circumcision isn't the promise of the covenant of grace, which is why baptism, okay, I'm not going to go there. All right, you you get my point. Isaac was the child of promise. And we are too through faith. We become a child of Abraham by faith. Our hearts are circumcised by faith. So this is where Paul defines who is a true Jew. And you know, this echoes back in chapter 2, verse 29, where he says that a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. It's not according to external birth or ritual. So he's, he's defining the children of promise. But, but, but again, let, let's not miss the main point. The main point. What's the main point? His main point isn't so that you look at yourself and think, am I a child of promise? I mean, that's an implication. That's where he goes in other passages. But what's his main point right here? main point is that God is the one who determines who are the children of promise and not man and not us. That's his point. God named Isaac as the child of promise. He is the one who said would be blessed. He is the true Israelite. He is the true Israel. He is the true Jew. God's promises are given sovereignly, not biologically, not ritualistically, not according to works. And and to nail this down, he then gives this illustration of Jacob and Esau in verses 10 through 13. And, and, you know, as we think about why does he give this example, he's, he's already made his point. God named Isaac as the child of promise, not Ishmael. Or the other sons of Abraham. Why this example? It's just because it's so explicit. These were two men born to the same father and mother. Exact same genealogy. They were born on the same day. They were raised and born in the same household. They were both circumcised as males. They had everything the same. Everything. And yet God said, 
The older shall serve the younger, and Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Being born in a covenant household does not mean that you are a child of promise in the Old Testament. God determined before anything that he would set his love on Jacob and that he would withhold his love from Esau. And I will say he adds that note. They were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. Paul's point there is, look, he isn't basing this. He didn't base this according to how they would turn out. Not according to God's foreknowledge of their future actions. It is before they had done anything good, before they had done anything bad. God set his purposes, his love on Jacob. He determined that just like he did with Isaac beforehand. So, think about, what do we know about Jacob and Esau's life? Well, we, if you've ever read the story of Jacob, the guy was rotten. Rotten. That's what his name means, deceiver. He was a horrible sinner. Just like Esau, at least until what we would say is his conversion when he wrestles with God at Bethel. Um, Early on in life, everything that we're told about his actual life, he is a ridiculously sinful man, just like Esau. But ultimately, it is Esau who despised his birthright. That is, he despised God's covenantal promises to him. He didn't care about the fact that God made a promise that through his seed, the Abraham's seed, the Messiah would come. He didn't care. He was willing to dismiss those covenantal promises for the sake of a meal kind of illustrates the fact that he didn't care. He didn't value it at all. He lived for the moment. That's what an unbeliever is. They live for the moment. They live for this world. They live for their next meal, their next drink, their next hit, their next experience. This is Esau. So Paul pulls back the curtain here and he says, look, just to let you know, Long before all this played out with them, before they had done these good and bad things, God had destined these twins for such. That's his point, and that's the hard thing to accept, but that's his point. Um, I do want to qualify quickly, briefly, this idea of hate. Um, We need to be a little careful when we understand Esau, I hated Um, On one hand, it is kind of a biblical idiom. If you remember how Jesus said, you must hate your father and mother to be my disciple. He's not saying that you literally, sinfully hate them. He's speaking of priority and preference. Your love for me ought to make your love for your family members seem like hate because you love and are devoted to me above everything else, which is the call of the Christian life. So on one hand, it's a biblical idiom. Um, and yet, on the other hand, we do have statements in Scripture like Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5, others, where God says very clearly that He hates the wicked. He hates all those who do evil. Um, understanding, of course, that God's hatred, though, ultimately, is, is holy hatred. It's not hate like we hate. It's not, it's not sinful hate. 
it's, it, it, you know, um, it, it is righteous hate. It's, it's like how we would, you, we would hate, you know, um, a serial killer or, or a, you know, or we hate somebody like Hitler or we hate somebody like a child molester. Like there, there's, a, there's justice to that hatred. It's, it's not just, it's not sinful hatred. It, it is holy and righteous hatred for the enemies uh, f- uh, for the for the people of God who to who hate him. I'm sorry for the people who hate him, and hate his people. So you know, be careful. We don't, we don't want to talk about you know as if God because our view of God and how He treats unbelievers is going to shape how we treat unbelievers. And Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount. He ca- causes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. God, in some sense, is is long suffering and merciful, and patient, and kind, and benevolent to people who hate Him. He is in this life, and that is our, our, our guide, our, our model to follow as well. Even still, though, there's no clear ground. Um, middle, there, it's clear that there's no middle ground. There's nobody who's in that middle category of not love but not hatred. Hatred. Jacob I love, Esau I hated. And that should humble us. That should cause us to, to examine our own hearts and our own life and, and see, am I a child of God? Am I the object of His love? Or am I the object of, of, of His hatred? Not in the sense that we try to get behind and determine God's eternal counsel, but just in the sense of like, how have I responded to the revelation of the gospel? And this ought to humble me and cause me to seek his face. Grace? Great application. Yeah, it's a great application. Um, we, like Israel, can put our hope in, and you know, the the context in which we were 
raised and, and who our parents are and the church and the scriptures and all these things that we just take for granted. Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting because, you know, you look at the promise, you know, God, God often works through, God is often pleased to save the children of believers. Um, that, that, that is evident in history. It's evident in redemptive history as well. It's one of the greatest privileges to be raised in, in, in a gospel home, without a doubt. Um, but at the same time, you know, when God makes those promises, particularly in the Old Testament, he, he's promising to preserve a line to the Messiah, ultimately. That's where the, that's where the promises um, culminate. Um, in fact, in Jeremiah 31, when, when the new covenant is promised, he says, look, no longer um, you know, will, will the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth be set on edge. It's a proverb saying, no longer are the children uh, going to suffer for the sins of the father, but at the same time, no longer are the children going to be blessed because of the obedience of the father. Um, Jesus came proclaiming, look, the new household in the new covenant um, I've come to set father against daughter, father against son, mother against daughter. The enemies, of, the enemies will be of your own household, is what Jesus said. He's breaking that covenantal household paradigm that was so prominent in the Old Testament. And if, obviously, if you can't tell where I'm going here, sorry, Doug, um, it's Baptist theology coming out. Um, he's breaking that. But the implication is you can't trust in these things. You can't look to these things, even though they are great privileges like they were for Israel. The call now is believe today, repent. And um, it's sobering when we see children in Christian homes grow up and reject the faith. Um, because in some sense as well, there will be greater judgment. But it, it calls some self-examination. Amen. That's a great point. Let me uh, let me conclude here. I'm Eileen. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. They were uh, they 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 abused the privileges of 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 uh, in the temple, and, and God judged them for it. Yeah, absolutely. Karen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, all right. To, to conclude here, though, because we do have to conclude. <laughs> um, when faced with a question, have the promises and the blessings of God failed in Israel's rejection of Christ? Maybe we could also say, if we apply that to children raised in a Christian home nowadays, have the promises and blessings, or maybe we should say, have the blessings failed in the rejection of Christ? We must remember that true Israel is not according to the flesh. We must remember that true Israel is not according to circumcision or household. True Israel is not according to works. 
or even God's foreknowledge of future works, true Israel is according to God's purpose of election. And these things are just as true when it comes to us and our salvation as well as Paul is going to go next week as we will look at that the rest of this chapter. So all throughout this epistle we've seen that by the works of the law no one will be justified by circumcision and the the law, uh, possession of the law mean nothing in terms of our ultimate salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is where it all comes together. For grace, truly to be grace, it must find its source in God's sovereign love. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. I had some discussion, but we have to end. Um, we can pick up on this next week and open with this before we turn. But I want to ask you, does this make God arbitrary? I want to ask you, do we get so hung up on Jacob, excuse me, Esau I hated, that we've missed the fact, the wonder, that God chooses to love Jacob, a deceiver? And what attitude and perspectives do these things, should these things produce in us And are we, like Israel, prideful about our privileges according to the flesh? Those are things, questions that we must consider. But we will look at those next week. Let's go ahead and close in prayer.